Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we could be here today. We pray that you would bless this time that we have together in your word. And we pray that you would strengthen us uh, through this revelation that you gave to John, that you gave to the church. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us by faith in Christ. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, uh, flying low and fast. So, um, Revelation chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Would anybody be willing to read those verses for us? Thanks, Bill. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald, uh, emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. All right. So basically what you've got going on here is the scene is shifting. Before we had, Jesus, we had John seeing the lampstands and, and, and the Son of Man. We understand that is Jesus in his glory and in his, this just incredible vision of, of power and majesty. And, uh, and so he gives them these seven letters, and we, we talked about those last week. And now he, uh, he is it, shifting to a different, different part of the vision. It's all one vision, but it's going in a different direction now. All right. And uh, he says, the voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Same voice that he had heard earlier. This is all God's revelation. You know, this is all about what God is saying. And, uh, and, and as he sees, um, he, he sees one who is seated on a throne. And he talks about this jasper and carnelian and, and emerald and this rainbow. And, you know, and I think that you know, it's kind of this weird image. But it's really an image of God's glory, you know. And uh, so, how do we how do we imagine that? You know, we often imagine it bright and colorful and and all of these things. But I think also, you know, the image of the rainbow is important too, because biblically speaking, the rainbow is an image of God's judgment promise. and promise. Yeah, but it reminds us that He destroyed the world for their sin, and that He rescued the world in Noah. Both things going on there, and it's showing him as the Lord of history. And so he's looking at God and he's looking at this incredible image, and we see around it 24 thrones and 24 elders. And so, you know, we start to ask, well, well what's this about? Well, how many tribes of Israel? 12. How many apostles? 12. 12 plus 12 gives us 24. And so this is basically saying uh, it's an image of all believers. It's saying the whole church. Not a New Testament church and not an Old Testament church, but the full church. Because when you think about when there was, was salvation on earth, there was salvation the moment that God asked the question, you know, where are you? 
when Adam and Eve sinned, he approached them with grace and with mercy. He made the promise shortly thereafter of sending a Savior. And all of those people in the Old Testament who looked forward to when Jesus would come, they're part of the church. And we who are in the New Testament look back to when Jesus died to pay for our sins. That's the church. And that's what he's saying. Is this, this, is, this is all believers of, of the Old and the New Testament. They're dressed in white robes. Uh, white is a symbol of purity. You know, it's a symbol of holiness. And they've got golden crowns. Because we remember that in the end, the, the church, God's people, will judge the earth. So there is a, a sense of authority that's involved here. But uh, uh, I think it's kind of important to see what they're going to do with those crowns. Um, we're not people who exercise authority, but we use authority in service and worship to God. And that comes to us in, in, uh, in this next section. Would somebody be willing to read 5, 6, 7, and 8? I will. Or some of it. Um, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. All right. The vision gets a little weirder. <laughs> we have these four living creatures that are there. Uh, it starts, this section starts with thunder and lightning, and, and this is really God's majesty, God's power, you know, being expressed here. And these seven torches or seven lamps, uh, the, the seven spirits that's talking about the Holy Spirit and the, the full presence of the Holy Spirit is there. Um, I think it's significant also that it talks about that, that uh, there's like a sea of glass. Um, the Old Testament often uses the sea as a symbol of the, the, where evil comes from. You know, and the sea is always kind of topsy-turvy and, and, and unsettled and, you know, and, and it becomes a picture of the, the sinful life in many ways. Except for here, it's just smooth. You know, God has expressed his authority over, and all is at peace. And, uh, and then we have these four living creatures. And um, what are these creatures? They're angels. You know, that's essentially what it comes down to. And uh, they are angels who lead in heaven. They lead the heavenly chorus in, in worship. And they look really strange. Uh, it says that they're full of eyes which doesn't mean that, you know, angels are actually covered with eyes, you know, type of a thing. But it's, you know, this symbolic language to tell us that uh, they're ever vigilant. They're always watching. They're, they're always doing the work that God has given them to do. And, and it talks about four creatures in particular that, uh, that these things look like. Uh, it says that, you know, one is like a lion, the second is like an ox, one is like a face of a man, uh, one is like an eagle in flight. Um, what, what's he getting at here? 
Well, people have tried to interpret these in a whole bunch of different ways. And um, I, I, I mean, I read a half a dozen different ones. You know, that these are four aspects of God. These are four pillars of the church. You know, it, it, it represents different things. Um, I, I think it's best to just kind of leave this as, you know, God is the God of all creation and, and it's reflected in the heavenly realms. And these creatures, uh, they've actually come to symbolize the, the gospels. Notice, I'm not saying that that's what it means here. But I am saying that because of the strangeness of the image, um, these images have been used to uh, become the symbols for the four Gospels. And so Mark is the lion, Luke is the ox, um, Matthew is the man, and John is the eagle. And uh, you know, as you look at these, um, I think it's really important uh, when we read Revelation, um, Throughout history, people have tried to put like a one-to-one over and over again. This means this. This means this. And I think sometimes we can do that, um, you know, with some certainty. But I think other times, we need to be really careful to let what's ambiguous remain ambiguous. So, lion, ox, man, eagle, why? Why not? Why not? You know, because this is what God chose to, to show John, yeah. But, the, but the, the, that's the question I always have every time I get into this, is why does he write that way? Or why does God have him write that way? Uh, how many people, and I keep going over and over, how many people when they're looking for some, some guidance from the Bible open up the Revelations <laughs> as an example? You shouldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, it, I, I'm, I'm being a little bit facetious, but I mean, yeah, it, it's a difficult book in that, the, you know, if you don't understand the overarching message and you start digging into, you know, these little things of, you know, oh, I'm going to predict the future by looking at this, that, and the other thing. It's not what it's for. You have to understand its purpose. And uh, a similar thing happens like with the book of Daniel, you know, and you're like, okay, well, this is the Greek Empire and this is the Babylonian Empire. And you just kind of, you know, work your way through. Sometimes we, yeah, you know, we can see that, okay. But other times it's like, yeah, no. We're going to get into the whole 666 thing a little later, not today. Um, how many people in history have 666 been connected to? Lots. Lots, including Presidents Obama, Bush, Nixon. Uh, you know, I mean... Yeah, I mean, it's just, okay, well, which one is it? Probably none of them. You know, it's, you know, he, he's saying that there's an enemy out there that we need to be aware of and that he overcomes him. And so I think that some of the strangeness of the imagery, though, Bill, is really to emphasize God's glory and that he is foreign from us and that the only way that we really truly approach him is through Jesus you know, so for us to come to this, this strange and powerful God is an incredibly intimidating thing. So how do we come to know him? But you just said it, and what I always wonder is, why doesn't the book just say that? Yeah. I think in, uh, yeah, I think in part because, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of literature. You know, it, it's meant to be beautiful. You know, and, and, and to kind of, 
blow our minds in, in ways that, uh, you know, God is bigger than you. You know, it does not. Yeah. You know, I, I think part of it is there's more to the world and there's more to God than we will ever be able to understand. And there is no way that we can, so you just take it at face value and know that God is God and we are not. Yeah. There, there's something like that in one of Shakespeare's plays. There is more in heaven and earth. Oh, yeah. 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 And I think that fits a lot with this. There's just more that we could absorb. Our brains, if God put it down in easy to understand language, we still wouldn't be able to absorb it. Yeah. <coughs> and that's one of the beauties, I think, of the Bible is that it reaches people where they are. If you can have somebody who has a very limited intelligence level, but they can get that Jesus died for my sins, and, and because of that, I have salvation. And you can get people who are brighter than I could ever hope to be who can get into this and can uncover theological scriptural truths on a level that I can't even begin to imagine. Yeah. Uh, so wherever you are, the Bible has something for you and there are people that can get things out of this that I can't. Yeah. Uh, and that's fine. I, I, God gives me the understanding that I need to read and understand his word on whatever level it is. Yeah. Luther um, used to say of the Gospel of John, it's shallow enough for a child to read and deep enough for the greatest theologian to yeah. drown in. <laughs> so, exactly. um, these six, uh, or these four creatures with the, the, the six wings and you know, this incredible image, um, they're there and they're, they're singing this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Does that sound vaguely familiar? These are the same angels from Isaiah 6 who are, are there leading worship in the temple. And, and so that's why I say they're, they're a specific class of, of angels. And um, the Bible doesn't go into a lot about angels. It does mention a, a couple of different kinds. Um, it talks about cherubim. Uh, it talks about seraphim. Um, you know, and uh, seraphim just means burning ones, bright shining ones. You know, and which are these? We don't, you know, we don't know. We're just kind of guessing. Um, but we do know what they're doing. They're leading the people in heaven in worship, calling out God's <coughs> holiness, you know, it, consistent with, with, with Isaiah uh, in, in his vision of, of God in the temple. Okay? I All right. Can, I can yeah. take it back. I do love the things like that that are interspersed in here, you know, where oh, absolutely. whatever vision he had is saying something, and those sayings I love. But yeah, and I think that we need to take some notice of those too. Um, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. That wasn't just, you know, you know I'm sitting here, oh, that'd be a good line. No, it's the Bible! <laughs> And there's a lot, there's a lot in our hymns and in our liturgy that are right here, that are the hymns of heaven. That's basically what's going on here. You know, they're, they're being led in worship and, and we've imported those into our hymns and into our liturgy. In, in other words, we're just copying what takes place in heaven so that, you know, what's going on in church is intended to be a small picture, a foretaste of the feast to come, you know, what's going on in, in the heavenly realms. So um, 
this, this worship scene continues, verses 9 through 11. Um, Becca, would you? And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All right, so the hymn starts, and what do the people do? They take the crowns off. They're saying, you know, God is God. I am not king. I am not the master. I, you know, I throw that at his feet. They fall down on their faces before God. It's an act of humility and an act of, of, of worship. You know, and they're, they're glorifying God instead of themselves. And this beautiful hymn, Worthy Are You, Our Lord and God. Um, as we read these, this is the feast of victory. You know, that's a lot of that just comes right out of this, almost word for word. But notice that in this section, what are they praising God for in verse 11? His creation. His creation. Yeah. You know, this is one of God's mighty acts that this exists, that we exist. And we do well to, you know, praise God for creating us. And that's something that he did in his holiness. You know, I think that sometimes our experience of life in the world is so corrupted by sin that, you know, this idea of a holy creation, it's difficult for us to wrap our minds around. But in heaven, you know, there's no issue here. We understand God's holiness. We understand that in holiness, he created all of this. And so that all of this is really to his glory. And, and so we praise him for, for creating and for making. So John believed that John, that uh, Genesis 1, 1 was accurate. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely, forward. absolutely. Yes. So many people try to... But it's not, uh, I think we need to understand that it's not a new thing that people think that the earth is, you know, considerably older than what the scriptures say uh, or considerably younger than the scriptures say. Um, people have speculated on this time out of memory. You know, even, you know, the pagans uh, speculated on that and did not have uh, answers. Um, there were a couple news stories this week um, that basically, uh, there was, they have, they, they've guessed that, uh, you know, people came into the world like 10, 15,000 years ago, something like that. And, uh, you know, they, they found evidence that, no, it's more like 1.4 million years ago. You know, and then there's something else that, you know, said, no, it's like, you know, you know this. I, I'm looking at him saying, you don't know. Admit it. You think you know, but you don't. You know, and, uh, um, you know, and a lot of it, I think that the, uh, the evidence is pretty... Um, it's pretty speculative, and uh, you know, and, and that's not to say that it doesn't have value, because I, I think that what we get from the scientific community, you know, in terms of the history of what they actually observe, you know, is, is very valuable. But I also think that uh, um, they come with a different filter, starting with there is no God, <laughs> and because of that, you know, they come to a different conclusion. 
You know, and so, you know, understanding that God is our creator is, is hugely important. I'm yeah. just going to say I've been reading this book about creation and everything, and they say since 1870 it has increased from millions to billions of years, just the earth alone. Yeah. And there's just no evidence for it. Yeah, you know, you guys are, the science that we have today is is light years above what was there in 1870. So, I mean, you would expect, I would expect things to be, uh, to move on. You wouldn't have the same, adhere to the same uh, theories or whatever that were there 200 years ago as you would today. But And, and it's, it's going to change in another 100 years because you're going to know more stuff. But the assumption is that we're becoming more right. <laughs> and that is an assumption. Mm-hmm. You know, we're stuff. We, we, we can't even decide whether coffee is good or bad for us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that changes about every couple of years. Yeah. When it comes down to it, all that matters is God created it. That is the key in this, yes. God created That is key in this. Um, but I, I also think that it's important when, when we engage the world... The world often comes, in terms of what we see out here, from the standpoint that all of this is just kind of a great big cosmic accident. It's a big bang theory. <laughs> and, and even with the big bang theory, I mean, people do come to that and they say, well, what was the, the I mean, the official doctrine of the Catholic Church is that the big bang is God, that he caused that. Causation, correct. That's right. What they're all looking Right, you know, and, and, and so, but, you know. But they all, they all believe by looking for it that there was a, a causation. Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. So, I mean, it, it's all very interesting, but uh, at the end of the day, God created. You know, and, and that's what they're worshiping him for here. I like the, when you read uh, Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the important thing. You just, that's where you start. Yeah. Yep. Clear as a bell. Yeah. All right. Revelation 5, <laughs> verses 1 through 5. Can I get somebody to read that? I got it. Thank you. But then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the, lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is, op- is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay. So now the vision is transitioning into a new part. You're still in the throne room of God, but now we have this, this, this scroll that's sealed with seven seals. Okay, Seven is a significant number in the scriptures. It means fullness, completeness. So what, what is this, this scroll? It's written on front and back. Well, this scroll is the prophetic message of Jesus' present and eternal reign in glory and the present faith and mission of the church in the midst of suffering and death in humanity and history. So this is going back to what God said. You know, I'm showing what is and what shall be. That's the scroll. 
That's what's going on here. Okay, and, and it's got these seven seals, and um, they're not the burr, burr kind of seals. Uh, they are like with a signet ring sealed. Yeah, um, and, and so this prophetic message, who is worthy to deliver it? Behold the lamb. Behold, actually not behold, behold the lion of Judah. Now this is, this is really important. Lion of Judah, this is kingly uh, type of language. And uh, you know, it's, it's speaking to Jesus' power and his authority. However, he's going to look to the lion, and what's he going to see? The lamb. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And then, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Look to the Lion of Judah, see the Lamb that was slain. When Jesus interacts with the world, he's the Lion. He is the powerful you know, son of man that we saw in, 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 in chapters 1 and 2, the one with, with all this authority and, and, and power and majesty. But when he approaches the church, he comes as the lamb, the lamb who was slain. Now, there's some weirdness in the image again. Seven horns uh, showing that he has you know, this full and complete power. And then seven eyes saying that the Spirit of God is upon him. This, this Holy Spirit that goes out into all the world to draw people to faith and to draw people to salvation. And what happens when the, uh, the Lamb, somehow, don't quite get this in my mind, takes the scroll? They all bow down and worship. Because Jesus has come to tell the story of salvation. If you want to put this like on a timeline, what's going on right here, this is Ascension Day. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is, he goes back into heaven to take his power and his glory. That's what's happening here. And he takes the scroll to proclaim uh, his, his salvation. And it says that the living creatures and the elders, they fall in worship. They each have a harp and a golden bowl of incense. You know, it, it just really emphasizes that, that culture of worship that's going on in heaven. You have music, and you have these golden bowls of incense, and uh, it identifies what those are. Did you catch it? The prayers of the saints. Yeah. So when you go to a, uh, a Lutheran church or a Catholic church that does uh, uh, incense or an Orthodox church, you know, one of those uh, liturgical congregations, and they're swinging the incense, you know, that's not just about making the room smelly. <laughs> it's symbolism. And, you know, it, 
it's symbolism that's rooted in the temple worship and in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and it's reflected here. It's a picture of prayer, you know, that that smoke rises up, that it's sweet-smelling before God. You know, and, and that's, you know, you, you, you've got the saints in heaven, in a sense, joining in the prayers of God's people. That, that's what's happening here. And they sing a new song. This one is about the Lamb in particular. And it talks about he is worthy to take up the scroll. Why? Because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because of his death and his resurrection that brings salvation to all people. And I want, I want to just kind of, this a little bit on a tangent, but notice it says from every tribe and language and people and nation. It does not say every race. Race is not a biblical word. It comes to us really out of this idea of, of evolution that we all come from kind of different branches on the tree. But the biblical message is that there is one race of humanity. And so what you have are different tribes, absolutely. Uh, in fact, there's a, a tribe that's down to one person in the Amazon. Did you see that in the news? The last person, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if they got smallpox or what happened, but the whole tribe died and there's only like one left. Um, and in uh, every language, because language is something that divides us. Every people, you know, this is kind of that city-state thing, and every nation. And, and it doesn't matter. All the people who believe in Jesus are rescued and saved. Jesus died for all of them. And says, you've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. And what do priests do? They intercede for others with God. And that's the, the image. And they shall reign on the earth. And he continues, he says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. That's just another way of saying there's so many that you can't even count them. Just huge. Um, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Notice how they keep coming back to that. The Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All of creation joins in this worship. Uh, sometimes not willingly, as we're going to find out as we continue through the book. You know, every knee shall bow, you know, and, uh, and, and that's what's being described here. And the creation itself, it's personified here, but creation was created to the glory of God, and it gives him glory. It worships in its own way, not in the way that we do, but in its own way. And then we start opening some seals. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. 
So this white horse. A white horse indicates belief in a divine authority to reign. They're, they're saying, you know, I, I'm divinely appointed to this job of reigning, of being king, of being master. Have we heard that kind of language in history? Absolutely. All the kings of Europe believed that they were appointed by God to that task. And really, all the kings of history believed that some deity you know, placed them upon their throne, or they were themselves some kind of deity, so therefore they had that right. The crown symbolizes political power, and the bow shows us that he intends to conquer through force. So the rider on the white horse symbolizes every form of tyranny which exploits, enslaves, dominates, and terrorizes. It's all about that, that political force, political power that's expressed in military might. And one of the things that we have to understand about this vision is that this isn't something that is going to happen. This happens. All through history, these things are taking place. You know, can you see anywhere in the world today where, you know, there's a political power that dominates people by force? Uh, in a few nations. Uh, pretty much all of them, to some degree or another. Yeah. So, the, the white horse. And then he opened the second seal. I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out, another, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Um, a red horse because red is the color of blood. And what follows tyranny is bloodshed. He's given a great sword to symbolize warfare. And the history of the world, is there war? Yeah. Pretty much constantly. Mm -hmm. Even now. Mm -hmm. Throughout the world, there, there, there is war. Then he opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and wine. What's going on here? Well, black is death. And what this horse actually uh, symbolizes, this horse and its rider symbolizes famine. And throughout the history of the world, you know, famine is more often caused by war than any environmental factors. You know, you remember, remember back in the 80s and 90s, they had the, uh, the feed the children things on the TV and they would show children from Ethiopia and their stomachs would be all distended. And The people of Ethiopia were more than willing and capable of growing their own food. The problem was there's this huge civil war that's been raging there and, and, and it continues to, to kind of flare up from time to time here. And what happens to their crops? They're destroyed. <coughs> that's what this horse is. It's the impact of war on the lives of people. You know, black is the color of death and it 
this time, death often followed famine. Now, he's got a scale in his hands. Um, it's like a balance scale, you know, for business. And, and so he talks about, uh, this voice says, you know, a quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius was a day's wages. And basically, these are hugely high prices that are being charged for wheat and for barley, for basic food. And what this guy symbolizes is the economic imbalance in the supply of food and, and daily necessities. He symbolizes man's oppression on man through economic forces. So glad you were here, Ed, and not where you just were. By the way, we accomplished one mission, I think, at Marymount. We restored one priest's faith in miracles. Good by job. telling him that we attended a pan-Lutheran <laughs> So the black horse symbolizes economic imbalance and man's oppression on man through economic forces. Does that ever happen? All the time. You know, so this, this, these things are always happening. And then the pale horse. Um, literally, the ghostly green horse, you know, if you were to read it in Greek. And this is death. The grim reaper who comes behind the others is a natural result of their actions. So you've got tyranny, which leads to war, which leads to famine, which leads to death. And that's the four horsemen. Yeah. And they're all constantly active now and all the way to the end. So sometimes, you know, I, I hear people talk about, you know, watching for the four horsemen. <coughs> you don't have to watch for them to appear. They're already here. They're already active. They're already doing their thing. And in a sense, they are God's punishment on the earth because the Old Testament often shows God displaying his wrath through disease, warfare, and famine. And... and John is just saying, or Jesus through John, is just saying this is kind of the way of the world in its brokenness and in its sin. Does, it, does the, the fact that he says, given power over a fourth of the earth, a fourth of the does that have any significance? It means that they're limited. Okay. That God in his mercy didn't say, just go kill them all. Yeah, okay. He shows compassion, you know, and uh, doesn't allow them to just completely run amok. No, no, it's constant. You know, everything that's going on here, I mean, if you want to limit the scope, take it from Jesus' resurrection all the way to the end. But I think you can make an argument that most of what he talks about in terms of what's going on now has always taken place ever since the fall in one way, shape, form, or another. If you read the Old Testament, it's full of it. Absolutely. All right, um, we've got a lot more to do. Uh, <laughs> chapter 6, 9 through... 11. Would somebody be willing to read that? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? 
Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Okay. So they're under the altar. That, the altar is a picture of sacrifice, right? That's what altars are for. I, I know that you know, in our culture, we set things on the altar that we're going to use in the worship service. But historically, you, know, you put something on an altar, you killed it, and you burned it there. You know, and you know, that's, you know, that, that's the picture here, that these people, uh, they were in a sense, they were sacrificed for the mission of God. You know, and, and it says that these are the souls who were slain for the word of God and for the witness they bore. They proclaimed God's word and they witnessed, they testified that Jesus had died and risen and that is the hope of all of humanity. And so they're there and, 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 and they're kind of wrestling with, you know, how long until this all ends? How much longer are you going to put up with this? And, and God answers them and he says, until the number of those who are martyred is complete. Which is not the answer I wanted to hear. <laughs> because it indicates that there is, there is more suffering mm-hmm. and there is more death for those who testify about Jesus and who hold firmly and faithfully to God's word. The church is always persecuted for God's word and and their witness, our witness, about the crucified and risen Lord. And sometimes that persecution comes in the form of violence and death. We can see this in North Korea, in the Middle East. Um, There were very powerful graphic images uh, of ISIS uh, who gathered Christians uh, on the beach and beheaded them there because they were Christians. And it's very comforting to have it happen over there, someplace. What's really as opposed to, to you know yeah. is when you realize it could be me here, and then it's a different story. Right, but I think that I think that this is something that you know, we should feel a little bit convicted about. Mm-hmm. You know that uh, you know the death of the saints and, and the persecution of the church. Um, we're awfully comfortable mm-hmm. over there. So. Yeah, because it's over there. Uh-huh. You know, for now. The day will come. Uh-huh. Um, and often uh, we experience smaller deaths. And, and even saying that, you know, it, it's, it's silly in comparison. But ridicule for faith in the word. Uh, sometimes there's economic disadvantages that come to believers. Uh, you know, there are all kinds of different ways that persecution takes place. But the ultimate form is when people, uh, you know, die for the faith, trusting in God for the resurrection. And he's saying, that is the way that history will go. Do not be shocked when persecution comes. In fact, a good friend of ours once said, in this world you will have trouble. You know, somewhere along the line, that got twisted to, when you come to believe in Jesus, you're going to be blessed and everything in your life is going to be good. No. But he does say, take heart, because I have overcome the world. Yeah. All right. 12 through 17. Um, oh, you may have, you may have uh, let's see. No, I'm not there yet. Um, when he opened the sixth seal, 
I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Again, this just beautiful graphic image. Um, the sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath, the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Notice for us, Jesus is the Lamb, and that is comforting, and it's all about our salvation. But to the world, even as a Lamb, it's terror and judgment when they don't have faith in him. And so what you have happening here with the opening of the sixth scroll is Judgment Day. And there's all these you know, apocalyptic images, you know, the earthquake and the sun becomes black and the moon becomes like blood. Very common image of uh, apocalyptic uh, uh, literature. And just this really incredible image of, of judgment coming upon the world. And then this question of who can stand? And that ushers in an interlude in the vision. And he says that after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. <clears throat> The wind here is a destructive force, and, and God is restraining it through his angels. Then I saw another angel ascend from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, the four horsemen, um, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. All right. So destruction is held back for the sake of God's people. This is an act of his mercy. And, and he does this as he seals his people, as he marks them, claims them. And with that mark and that claim comes protection. The, it's very puny. That's why it's a symbolic number. 144,000. 12 times 12 times 1,000. Pretty gross. Yep. <laughs> that was good. That was a good dad joke. <laughs> the 12, 12 tribes of Israel, the Old Testament, 12 apostles, the New Testament. All believers of all time, the thousand is, this is a big number. It's saying this is going to be huge. That, that, that's, that's what the 144,000 means. But what's the seal? Jesus. It's your baptism. baptism. Yeah. You were marked in your baptism. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God puts his name on you. Now, as this continues on, and by the way, keep that in mind when we get to the whole 666 thing because that's, you know, everybody's like, the mark of the beast! You have the mark of God. Don't freak out. Um, 
five through eight kind of breaks this down into the into different tribes. Now, this is a symbolic list because uh, this doesn't match any list of the Old Testament. And there are a couple weird things that are going on, like uh, Levi had no inheritance; he became a priest, you know, but he's included in this list. Um, Joseph, his portion went to his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, but it includes Manasseh and Joseph, but not Ephraim who was one of the leaders of Israel when they did a lot of great things. Dan uh, isn't even mentioned at all. You know, so the whole idea here is that this is symbolic of all of God's people, and it's, it's supposed to be a, a, a symbol of, of a very vast number of people. So, so what we have going on there is a picture of the church uh, uh Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Church militant. You know, going through the struggles and the strife of life who need to be sealed and need to be protected. But then the vision moves into a vision of the church triumphant. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So this vision of heaven there's a great multitude, unnumberable. Every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages, clothed in white. And we talked about that earlier. Symbol of holiness. They're holding palm branches. Can we think of a biblical story where people <laughs> have palm branches? Yeah, this, it's a symbol of peace, but it's also a symbol of, of worship. You know, because on Palm Sunday they laid the branches and their cloaks uh, before God. You know, it's, it's all part of that, that worship experience. And they're crying out in worship, singing. And, uh, and again, we, we heard hymn, you know, hymn verses that, that we have tweaked and used in our own worship today. Because worship is a reflection of what's going on in heaven. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. That's the message that's proclaimed over and over again. Now, the question becomes, who are they? And they get identified as the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What is the great tribulation? It's life. It's, it's the struggle of the faith that, that we have. It's, it's all the things that go wrong in life, from the smallest things to the biggest things. You know, in Psalm 23, um, which I'm going to reference in, on the next slide here, uh, we talk about, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And we use that at funerals, you know, saying you know, that it's after death that you walk through the valley of the shadow. 
but that's not actually what the biblical text means. This is the valley of the shadow, because what's after death for us? Light and life. And the shadow is this way. That's what we're walking through. And we fear no evil because God's with us in the midst of this. And, and, and that's what's going on here. These are the people who walk through the great tribulation, walk by faith and, and experience God's blessings and his goodness. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Which is kind of a strange image. You know, you know blood <coughs> stains. It doesn't make things clean. Except that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that's, that's what they're getting at here. And we go through the shadow of death because we go from this life to life in heaven and we don't really have to actually die. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tangent. I'm, I'm not going to go there. Sorry. <laughs> I don't have time. Uh, so they've washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And then there's this kind of hymn verse again, uh, this poetry. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. That's right directly out of Psalms. Uh, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Again, more images from Psalms. Uh, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, Psalm 23. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Again, uh, from the Psalms. Um, and this image of shepherd is also uh, John chapter 10, Jesus the good shepherd. Um, so therefore, like I said in the sermon, when you see therefore, you, ask to ask, you should ask, what is the therefore, therefore? Um, it's to point us back to remind us that they were washed in the blood of the lamb. And because they're washed in the blood of the lamb, they're, savage, they're, they're sheltered from the savages uh, and the ravages, excuse me, of the horsemen, etc., God protects his people. That doesn't mean that bad things don't happen to God's people, but he does protect us in the midst of these things. And he takes the bad things that happen to us and he makes those opportunities to share the, the hope that we have in Christ. And it speaks to the release from, from earthly pains <coughs> that will take place once we are there in glory with him, when we're with the lamb, who is the shepherd. And God wipes every tear from their eyes, from our eyes. And friends, this is why we long for the last day. This is where God makes everything right again. We don't long for the resurrection simply to see our loved ones. That is a wonderful side benefit of the resurrection, that we get to be with grandma and grandpa and spouses and loved ones and children and all of those things. But that great day is really all about being able to be with God in Christ as he makes all things right. And then we come to chapter 8, verse 1, that says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? <laughs> After all that other stuff, you know, angels with eyes all over them and, you know, these horsemen and everything. And he opens the seventh seal. This is a big one. This is the last one. Silence for 30 minutes. What's going on here? Well, this is, this is the beginning of the, the 
heavenly rest. And we don't get to see the picture. He just says, it's, it, it's kind of like one of these, it's all going to be good. It's going to be peaceful. It's going to be wonderful. And that's all I'm going to say about it. You know, the new creation has not yet come. And, and John does not see it here, although he's going to talk a little bit about it as we get to the end of the book. Um, but he's just basically saying, it's completed. Salvation is done. Now, I do think that it says something interesting about silence and worship and silence in life. You know, I think a lot of times we fill ourselves with noise um, and, uh, and that leads to a lack of peace in our lives. Carl Jung, uh, the, the psychiatrist, once said, um, busyness is not from the devil, it is the devil. And uh, I, I think that this noisiness of life is really intended to be a distraction. And it, and it separates us, it separates us from God and it separates us from one another. And in this silence, I see that, you know, all those separating factors are, are pulled away and, and we're reunited with God. And then we read two through five. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashing of lightning, and an earthquake. And basically what we've just done is stepped into the next part of the vision. And what's going on here is it's starting over. This isn't a, a whole new vision. It's the same vision from a different angle. And that's what goes on throughout the book of Revelation. So we walk through these seven seals and we see what God does to bring the end into the new beginning. And when that vision comes to a close, it morphs right into the next one. That's basically looking at, at, at the same thing. So the vision begins again. Um, Revelation spirals uh, around the, the themes of the present and eternal victory. And, uh, and it continues to talk about the church's mission and, and witness as it suffers and waits for the fulfillment of all things. One last image, and then we got to go. So if, if Revelation is all about you know, Jesus' salvation and the mission of the church, the proclamation of the cross, Revelation is kind of like a spiral that goes around this. And in each part... You know, we're looking and we're seeing a slightly different view of the same thing. So all of these things, they're taking place continually and it's all pointing us back to Jesus' salvation and the mission that he's given us as God's people. And I think that is the secret to interpreting Revelation. Not, oh, this is this, you know, and, and I see this in this president, and I see this in this, you know, political event or, you know, whatever else. But it all comes back to what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank
thank you for your word. We thank you for the salvation that Jesus has won for us and the mission that he has given us as your people. And we pray, Lord, that you would come and that you would, would set all things right. And in the meantime, we pray for patience and for peace and for courage and for the strength of your spirit to be your witnesses and to proclaim your word in this world. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.